Well, Dr. Draper, it's uh, been a bit uh, opportunity for us to get together and chat. And um, I think this recording comes out of some conversations you and I have been having as we've been trying to get our hands around some of the issues that our students are dealing with. For those of uh, you that may not still know us, we are predominantly college professors. So our lives and the controversies we deal with are usually informed by what our students know and don't know. And uh, typically they engage things that have gotten culturally popular. Um, and then somehow that trickles down through their social media posts uh, until they start dealing with it. And so we usually end up having to do this crazy thing where we get ideas filtered that we have to then unpack, go back into the real world and say, no, here's where these ideas actually came from. Um, so that we're not dealing with characterizations of theories and ideas or some you know, poorly chewed uh, and digested ideas. Um, and one of the issues that we keep coming back to, um, I know Dr. Draper and I have spent a lot of time talking about, is this idea of the influence of critical theory and the role that it's having. We've done previous podcasts on it, but what we wanted to do um, was possibly take the topic and unpack it a little more into an approach that we're looking to take. And Dr. Draper, I think one of the things I've known from our ear and eye conversations is that understanding something like this is as much a matter of understanding what it is as understanding why it is. Mm -hmm. What is critical theory is one set of common, well, it's this belief, that belief, this theory. But why is it impacting our culture? Why are teenage kids coming to college already conversant, apparently, on yeah. something called a critical theory? When you and I grew up, we had never heard this term. It wasn't part in of... our esoteric philosophy class. Yeah, and, and then your eyes roll back in your head yeah. and someone's talking about Marxist epistemology and you just sort of go on to the next class. So, so this, this becomes an important issue is to, is to help understand not only what this thing is, but why it got here and how it got here so that we kind of sort of deal with it. And I know you've dealt with this. In fact, you, we, our conversation started today even with about a story about a student um, who has heard apparently that somehow... Um, struggles with homosexuality are actually tied back to some issue with Marxism. I don't know if you want to just tell that yeah, story. Yeah, it was, it was a class I was teaching, and the student was reading about the, the 50s and 60s and the Cold War and, and that type of thing. And they said it was fascinating to them that people in the 60s were linking Marxism with homosexual liberation. Hmm. And the student's question was, that doesn't make sense to me. Hmm. Marxism is an economic system that, you know, it's not capitalism. I think that's how some people, right? <laughs> and, and homosexuality is a sexual issue. And, and homosexuals at, at Stonewall were, were fighting for sexual liberation. Right. So how on earth would you connect those two things, right? right? That just seems silly. And uh, I, I'm a huge fan of MASH. And I was like, you know, this, this stuff showed up in MASH episodes as well which was a 1970s show but trying to look at the 50s and 60s yeah, right yeah. and i said you're right and i said well i think you're asking a question that we're going to need an entire couple lectures to unpack because it's not so much the economic marxism right that that you're thinking it's more of the social marxism yeah. and and we can't even have that conversation until we get to critical theory yeah. and we get to the frankfurt school and all of that. And I said, so we're going to get there. Yeah. And hopefully by the end of the semester, you can see why the Frank Burns character for MASH would link mm. the war in Korea against communism as part of also a war against perversion. Right. Right. right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I said that that doesn't make sense on the first because it all depends on how you're defining Marxism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
then for them to understand even some of the ideas that evolved during the sexual revolution in the, the marriage yeah. of sec, what, what people believed were sexual values and economic right. interests. Right, right. Uh, and that was not immediately apparent to a 20-year-old undergrad right. in 2021. Right. Now here and here's the here's what may be really confusing then is that if you deal with something like critical theory if that's the term we're using for now is it does have some intellectual components that feel like you can just pull them out and look at them. Mm -hmm. But the way you're talking here and I think is important is that these come layered in with these historical events and what students do often, just because they probably haven't trained well, is to realize that all of these come with all with historical moments, historical weights and complications. So as you and I were talking, it's really, you know, knowing some of the history, it's impossible to talk about, let's say, critical race theory without understanding the impact World War II had on, or World War I had and the rise of socialist nationalism yep. has on Germany in the 1930s. And that what you end up getting at the back end here on critical race theory is not simply just an idea right. about society. It's a layered reaction to abuse and socialism and, and exploitation. All of these facts are also tied up in these theories and you can't simply extricate them and say, well, critical theory is just a set of these five beliefs. Well, no, it's actually those beliefs and these historical conditions and the oppression that's happened over here and the economic difficulty and industrialization. So this is where it becomes complicated. You can't just come up with a very simple, like, you know, tweet on here's critical no, theory. Right. right. You've got to unpack. That's all why we have a problem moments. today. People are right. having these conversations in those spaces. Right. Even our scholars. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in fact, when the student asked the question, I'm like, I'm going to need a couple timelines to pull this off for you hmm. <laughs> to answer this question. Like I need it. I need I'm going yeah, to need a couple great. timelines to show you how these ideas evolved and developed. And and also, too, in a similar cases, I am currently teaching a class on the American Civil War uh, and I'm spending a lot of time in the antebellum period. And hmm. uh, one of the books the students are reading is the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. And I said, you know, you're going to hear a lot of talk about race in this class and during this time period. I said, don't confuse that with critical race theory. I said, long before anyone put the words critical race and theory together, guys like Frederick Douglass, Lemuel Haynes, on and on and on, were talking about racial systematic problems, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, but they weren't using the same language. I said that you can't, you don't, you, you, you can't get to critical race theory until around the same time as Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. is writing in America, a, oh, a, a German guy right. sitting in England writing Das Kapital and developing ideas about the Industrial Revolution yeah, that's right. that will then be further fleshed out right. into how do these systems operate. Right. Uh, and I said, so don't get those confused that every time you, you know, Frederick Douglass is somehow CRT. <laughs> but what I would say is this. But you will meet people and you will read people who are proponents of CRT who would say, we believe that critical race theory, when they do their genealogy, mm. they may be including Marxist critique, but they're also including Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also including uh, uh, struggles against slavery mm -hmm. and struggles mm -hmm. against racism in the American story. So a critical race theory person, when I read their work, and if they were going to blow out a whiteboard with a yeah. timeline, I think it would look a little different. Yeah. Um, where somehow Marx and, and Frederick Douglass are, uh, while they're contemporaries, they're, they don't know they're working on the same thing, mm. 
but it will eventually hmm. become part of that. So when you read some of the stuff on critical race theory and they say, what are influences? Um, Marxism is, is one of them and an honest CRT person would deny that. But so would be Frederick Douglass, yeah, yeah. right? So would Nat Turner. Yeah. Um, so is Dr. King. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, rich sort of... The same way if we talk about quitter, critical uh, queer theory, mm. uh, maybe you would meet some people who would say, well... We're going to tell you know, guys like Walt Whitman, yeah. right? Yeah. Were were uh, while they weren't out, they certainly played a role in changing how people viewed homosexuals mm-hmm. uh, once people figured it out. Yeah. So here's here's one of the interesting things then as we start to unpack with this. And I didn't mean to out Walt Whitman, but I, I think he's been out, so. <laughs> he's been out. At least in the academy, anyway. um, and maybe people outed who were never out, but they're out anyway. Uh, but in, in this talk of critical theories, maybe one of the things we need to do is really talk about how it's changed. Well, let me stop you there for you. just used a word. You just changed language on us. You, yeah. you just threw a plural into yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we've been saying critical theory, and you just said critical theories. Yeah. You want to explain that before? Yeah, and this is, this is something I think you brought up early on, and that is that what, what we realize now, if you're looking at this thing called critical theory, you're not actually talking, talking about a homogenous belief system. You're actually talking about sort of activist systems that are that are using certain ideas to approach certain social situations and cultural situations. So one being a race issue or one being in a, just of gender, let's say male, female, mm-hmm. then one maybe homosexuality, trans. And, and now I think there's disability. Yeah, uh, there's well. discrit, there's Latino crit, there's, right. there's lots of different so, critical theories. So when you talk theories at the back end, like what this has matured into, you're seeing activist systems that are actually being used where some set of theories or beliefs are being used to approach a certain situation or set mm-hmm. of circumstances that are considered oppressive or considered unjust or something along those lines. So that each, but each of these are really hard to mesh together. Like it's really hard to put, and, and one we're seeing now, right, is the idea of let's say gender, male and female, right? Patriarchy being the bad thing and yeah. feminism being the solution with transgender issues where you have a, yeah. a man pretending, you know, saying that he's a woman and then competing in the swim team, right? right. Which now looks to the feminist critical theorist as if patriarchalism is happening all over again because mm. now the male is is winning even though it claims that um, he's just a, a non-menstruating woman, or mm-hmm. as the case may be, or can't get pregnant, I forget what the new term is for it, or non-uterus, whatever. So I think I think by the time you get down here where you've got different theories being actually different activists working in different fields, it's hard to pull them all back together again and say, they're all critical theorists because actually at points they would be fighting with one another. But but that so I think that's that's why we have to use the term and you've made this point we have to use the term critical theories right because right. actually there's no way really fairly to pull them all back together but that doesn't mean and you used a word Dr Draper um, that does not mean that those individual critical theories and the spaces they work in yeah. don't share something genetically and I think we're starting to use this language yeah there seems to be a DNA right, right. that 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 is a his, as a, is a intellectual historian if you did a genome test you did right if you sort of looked at the the, the genome strand <laughs> and and as an intellectual historian following back the question of how did these ideas develop mm. and how do they develop the way they develop? Mm. I think that's just as important of a question. You, you do need the timeline. You do need to go back and say, okay, where did these ideas, because I think what seems silly to what we might call the, you know, the undergrad who's learned about this stuff through tweets and uh, virtue signaling mm. and Twitter mm. activism, mm. when you say something like, uh, gender rights is wrapped up in neo-Marxism or mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter is, is wrapped up in neo-Marxism. They're like, 
I don't yeah. even know what you're talking about. Like right. Marxists are anti-capitalists, and I just bought a hat off of the Black Lives Matter <laughs> website. So how are you even saying that they're right. Marxist? Right. And, and because they're, they're the definition of Marxism is in a very uh, economic sense, yeah. right? Yeah. And and because they don't really understand and know the Frankfurt School critical theory turn mm. that takes place in the early early to mid 20th century it doesn't sound and i think too even when we were kids growing up in the cold war and you know in kindergarten getting under the desk in case there's a nuclear attack communism was marxism was always some sort of dictatorial uh we knew that they didn't have freedom we knew they couldn't buy Beatles albums (laughs) you know we knew they couldn't just buy stuff the way we could right? right right There was no, we didn't really talk about sort of... Well, the Politburo lived in mansions. Well, yeah, but we didn't talk about sort of the epistemology of Marxism and the ontology and those types of things. And the reality is that nobody knew what social... No one really talked about critical theory in the... Okay, yep. How far back? We're good. No, go ahead. Um, If we look at all of the species, we have to look at them individually as issues, and I mean something by that. But we also have to say, even though they can't be bundled back into one thing called critical theory anymore, there's still some sort of genetic structure that we can evaluate and examine. And you see it actually played out in the individual species. So there's worth talking about that because there is something shared between them. But here's the other side of that and why theories matters is because each one of these critical theory movements is actually dealing with real facts on the ground. And where people engage critical theory and where they support it most often is not at the genetic structure. Yeah. Because they're probably not even aware of what the genetic structure is. Even some means. of the people who might identify with one of the critical Correct. theories. Yeah. yeah, they're not even aware that there is a genetic structure there. They're dealing with it at the level of the fact that they're facing, the experience, and the way that the critical theory that they're dealing with is at least willing to talk about, announce, or describe the problem they're facing. So, for example, and we, we've seen this a lot in our own community here, is that many African Americans in urban centers grab a hold of critical race theory because critical race theorists are the ones willing to talk about the structural problems that African-Americans face. When you talk to African-Americans in those communities, they would say, I, I don't know the Frankfurt School and I don't care about That's right. critical theory. That's what right. I care about is these people are talking about what matters to me. Yes. Right. So yes. once we have to make this distinction, and this is really important to what we're trying to do here, we have to make the distinction for, for listeners and readers that there are two ways that critical theory is engaged. One, it's engaged at the practical level where it's, it's problems people are facing, and this is the one group willing to talk about it, but it's also a reality that there is a genetic structure mm-hmm. and that the ideas do have consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a neutral conversation about race problems. You're framing the race problems now yeah. in a certain way consistent with this critical movement and all the way back to Marxism. So when you say, I think you're right, you tell someone, oh, that, uh, that transgender critical theory has a lot to do with cultural neo-Marxism. <laughs> That may not make any sense. Or it looks like, oh, there's there's somebody who's part of the problem trying to obfuscate. <laughs> right, 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 exactly, exactly. But the reality is those solutions that are part of the critical movement do have a shared DNA. Yeah. And those ideas are going to frame these problems. They're not just going to look at them and address them. They're going to frame them. Yeah. And I think if and I like the fact we're using DNA mark because the idea of DNA is that DNA takes all the raw materials and organizes it according to a set pattern. Yep. And if anything is happening here, there is something underlying this, some neo-Marxian, cultural Marxian, something rather Hegelian, we've got to come up with a term. Yep. That thing really is taking the raw material of social problems and it's boxing them and putting them into categories so it's starting to build 
these constructs, which even though they're in these different fields and areas, share that same sequencing. Yes. Yeah, and no, I agree with that. And there's and implications I, for that. There's and I think, too, maybe part of the way to get at that is Karl Marx is really reacting to the Industrial Revolution right. and the industrial shift, right? The shift from agrarian yeah. to industrial. Violent, mass. difficult. Exactly. And creative. as are the Frankfurt School dealing yeah. with that. And oftentimes when you read what we'll call the critical theories, whether it's queer critical theory, race critical theory, oftentimes at some point it is the social structures which oftentimes are created in their mm. in this understanding by the economic structures mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that have created the problem yeah that's right, right? um and so you know even some of the frankfurt school people would say that you know okay maybe in a time of economic depression or uh, lack of fertility this a society would be opposed to homosexuality yeah yeah right yeah, for yeah. for purely pragmatic reasons yeah. uh but when that isn't a condition why is it still in play right right, right. So again, they're, they're looking at the, the, the economic and, and lived experience. I think the other thing, too, that's really important for our listeners and, and, and for us as we're working through this to think through is we now live in a period where experience is the jump off point. Yeah. Um, it, it, everything's very grassroots. Everything's very experiential. Most people don't start with theory and yeah. work their way down. Yeah. They're starting with their experience and then trying to build the theory out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that gets to your point where I, I think, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think even if I go back to Marx and even the Frankfurt School, they were looking at an experience, but they were trying to create theories. Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to create theories and they really were kind of in this, and they were, they were academics, right? Yeah. They, were yeah. Frank, they, were, they were professors. At a university, yeah. Yeah, they were in the ivory tower and that's what they do. Right. Not Marx, but the Frankfurt School. Good so they really were trying to create ideas. Uh, but today, I think you're right. I think everything, even even religion today, yeah, that's true. Is 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 not beginning with what's my doctrine of God and what's my orthodoxy. Right. It's beginning with well, how do I feel about this? Yeah, what's right? my, what's my experience, experience with this? Yeah, and that just that is just a, a an epistemological shift that yeah. we're experiencing right now. So it shouldn't surprise us. That's just where we are. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you talk about Twitter and social media, what does everybody do? They, they tweet and post about their experiences, yeah. right? Everyone yeah. has an epic experience. No one can just have a regular <laughs> No one has a regular experience. Right? <laughs> you know, no one says, hey, my meal was awful yeah. on, on, on Facebook, right? They do that on Yelp. <laughs> and, and so I think that's, that's part of this, too, is that to remember that just because that's how our culture right now is doing its yeah. Processing doesn't mean that's always the way it's been right. Done. And I, yeah, that's a great point, Mark. And I, I think that's an important piece to keep in mind as we sort of unpack this. And I, the other thing I would and I would add to that. I'm going to take away from it. I would add to it that if if you think that really experience is the thing, then you've forgotten that experience has already come pre-digested, and that you come into a world saying, "Hey, I'm just saying." No, you've already been given terms through your entertainment, through your music, through the social society you live in, through the way you've been parented. That I think there is this faith, and I think you're right about this. The faith is that if I experience it, that's actually real. Yeah. If that's what I feel about it, and I've actually had a conversation with the fact member here, if people feel that way about it, it's real to them. Yep. And what, and I think Tim Keller's done some work on this. What we, what we have to do as historians is be able to say, no, you actually accept those feelings because your culture has told you to accept those feelings. Mm. So it's actually not a prima facie truth that your feeling is accurate. Your feeling is usually given to you by your surroundings. You're told how to feel about something. 
And I think for to be a really reflective thinker and to really put ourselves back inside, we think it's a biblical worldview, is we can't accept that our feelings about these experiences are in fact accurate from the from the get-go. Yeah. Because they're all tied back into worldviews and cultures and societies. Or, and we have to have somewhere we can measure these feelings and somewhere to test them. Yeah. Because feelings can be real. Right. right? And feelings can be accurate. Uh, but you have to be able to test them and and validate them. Right. Not just say, well, I have the feeling. Now it's let's real. go. It's right. real. Let's go. You really do have to have some sort of uh, litmus test. Right. Uh, to, 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 to evaluate it. And I think that's, that's part of where we are with this. And I think uh, what we, where our specialty is as historians is really looking at the history of ideas. Yeah. So we are always interested in where did this come from? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how do we yeah. get here? Right. Um, well, how did we get to this and, point? Right. And to your point, and I, I think we go a step further maybe, and say that the very idea that we allow feelings to describe reality rather than the other way around is, in fact, the result of this exact intellectual process. Yes, right? yes. It's not just that our, our social media is playing into it beautifully. It's playing into it because that's the intellectual baggage we've been handed. And so we've organized our lives around that by saying, yes, the priority is the way someone experiences something. Because quite frankly, critical theory is a genetic, but as it becomes critical theories, it plays on that exact currency. Yes. You are oppressed or controlled or manipulated because you feel as if you are. And I think that's maybe the difference between Karl Marx and his economic theories and the Frankfurt School. Yeah. Right? The Frankfurt School is looking at social issues, marginalized groups, yeah. things like that. Yeah. And therefore, feeling marginalized is, is a feeling. Is right? marginalization. And, and, and then, you, then they're trying to say, well, how did this happen to you? Yeah. Right, where Marx, the answer is clear. It happened to you by the means of production. Right, right? means of production. Right. And, and, and they're they're going down deeper, right? They're because they're not just sticking with Marx. They're marrying Hegel. They're marrying Freud. They're they're bringing in a lot yeah. of different people right. in here. Right. They're using a lot of different philosophical uh, ideas yeah. to flat to become something. And I think one of the mistakes we can make is let's not assume in this conversation that the Frankfurt School is this well fleshed out. Yeah. They, th this this group did not write a Das Kapital, yeah. right? You can read Das Kapital and kind of get yeah. Marx's idea and boom, this is what he wants. These guys don't. They don't do that. They're, they're, they're far more uh, cagey. Than yeah. that. You know, they, no, they, they don't true. do that. And we'll get into why. And we'll get yeah. into why. And, but, and I think when we get to, say, what we're calling the critical theories now is these are movements, and we'll use our DNA and maybe we'll use some some, I was a background in horticulture, so I'll okay. use some, is that really what happens, and maybe the way to get at this is, you have Karl Marx, and, and you have some ideas in there, you have some DNA in there, and the Frankfurt School is going to kind of cross-pollinate mm. with some other issues, mm. and in different zones, right? So mm. we, we know, I just had a conversation the other day with a student from Egypt, or from Ethiopia, and he was talking about the elevation, I was like, that's what makes the coffee good, yeah. right? That it's the, the real estate affects the flavor. Right. And so I think what you have here is you might have Karl Marx who's talking about economics, but this group they're in a very different position. They're in a different um, they're in different ecology. They're in a different uh, climate zone, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're applying this, and but they're also cross pollinating it yeah. with other ideas, and, and they create this sort of new set of flowers. Yeah, right, right. And then that, but no one stops there, right? It continues to be cross-pollinated with, yeah. we would say maybe in the late 60s, the Frankfurt School gets cross-pollinated with the civil rights movement, yeah. Yeah. right? It's, it's why Skokie Carmichael sounds different than Dr. King in, 19, in yeah. 1963, 
Um, it, it, it takes on something different. The same way Dr. King's probably sounds very different in 1963 than someone like Michael Eric Dyson sounds today. Yeah. Or uh, Cornel West. Yeah, yeah. Because these other things have been cross-pollinated right. with these ideas and it, it creates a very different thing. Right. But if you do the DNA analysis is what we're trying to say, yeah. you can you find see, the, yeah. the mother plant. Right, right. Yeah. And here's where this is, I think this is where this is really important. I like two things here, Mark. Maybe just clarify that and then let's maybe walk backwards from this point of critical theories just to the stages that get us back just to show that there's a continuity here because I think what we'd like to do in the future then is tackle each one of these in their own right to sort of build the story up. But where, where this matters and what I think what, what scares me, if I can use that word uh, with my students, is that they are, they are picking these flowers, if you will. They're picking these fruits and they're tasting them and seeing them for the, what they provide without being aware of all of the baggage. And also the, the, the thing that you get at the end looks like a tomato, but there's DNA in there that actually tells something very different. Yeah. And I think what unnerves me is that there's not space in our culture to, to, to zoom back and go, okay, this is the idea and why it matters to people. Let's look at what it actually includes. Because you, you've used this phrase before. You are going to have to onboard with that thing a lot of baggage. And you want to be aware of what the baggage is you're going to onboard. Yeah. There are serious social problems. There are serious race problems. And there are serious structural problems. But to use the DNA to then package that problem means you're going to onboard all sorts of metaphysical concepts, mm -hmm. epistemological concepts. Um, soteriological concepts, yep. right? anthropological, all of these things come with it. And, and I think as Christians, we have to say we really care about the actual problems people face, but we want to very carefully frame that inside of a biblical framework that onboards the gospel yep. rather than a critical theory, which can very easily, and I think does, onboard all those ideas that really become oppositional to the gospel yep. and actually make it nearly impossible for the gospel to function. So I think there's a reason to ask people to do the hard work here with us yeah. of saying, what is the genetic structure? What are some that you may not see them? You may not even know they're there. You don't have the microscope powerful enough, but they are there. And you can't just accept them at the theories level here where they're helpful without knowing what you're onboarding in the process. And I think maybe if we use our Augustinian analogy, right? City of God, city of man. The critical theories, Karl Marx, Frankfurt School, they, they, they're all very much rooted, and, and we're not putting words in their mouth, in a very closed system, right? Mm -hmm. It is not transcendent at all. No, no, There's no. not really a transcendence here. Anti, really. Uh, now, on some hands, in some ways, they I've heard some Marx, and Marx scholars say Karl Marx almost has to talk out of both sides of his mouth. Because mm -hmm. on the one hand, he's saying it's closed system, there's no transcendent. Yet he still does have this idea of historical utopia, right? transcendence. Yeah. So it's like, okay, there's some kind of transcendence. But it's a transcendence that's not supernatural, right. that's for sure. Yeah. But when you are a citizen of the city of God, uh, you, you automatically can't accept any system that is purely... Yeah. Closed system, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you're operating in the tra with a transcendence. So I think that's an important yeah. thing to remember that to buy all of this wholesale without being, dare I say, critical of critical <laughs> theory. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and being able to say, okay, well, we, is there anything here that I need to hear? Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. I can hear those critiques, but now what do I do with them? Yeah. Um, but I think that's one of the challenges to this is that in its purest form, it's very uh, it's very focused on the eminent, yeah. right? The now, the here, right? Everything is physical. It's matter. You move it around. I do think, though, I would say 
I think in some of our mainline seminaries and stuff, there are some people attempting to do some sort of critical liberation yeah. theology yeah. that's trying to play with some sort of transcendence in some way. But it's going to look very different than yeah. what we would call orthodox historic trans Christian transcendence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 it is that is one of the challenges we have to. So you're you're as a Christian evaluating this. If you don't have um, a worked out Christian worldview and dare I say systematic theology, no, fair with your categories yeah. sort of understood, you are just going to kind of you know sort of this uh, golden corral buffet of ideas and, you know, I'll take a little this and this and you don't realize that, okay, you can do that at a buffet, but when you're trying to build a structure that way, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And, you're, and you're bringing in things that are really ultimately harmful to what you're doing, which is what we believe since we believe that it's yeah. Christ's kingdom yeah. and his city. And also, too, is what is the answer, right? What is the, what is the eschatology yeah. that these ideas are pointing to? Yeah. What is the new heavens and new earth in this right. this process? And I think Marx had an economic sense of that. Uh, I think, but I don't think the Frankfurt School even wanted to venture yeah, into that. Yeah. Um, and some of the critical theories, I think, they don't even. I've heard um, some of the leaders of the uh, critical race theory say we really see CRT as a tool. Mm. Not so much uh, a worldview. Mm. Not so much. Now, uh, I've had uh, some friends of mine who are scholars who would say, well, actually, critical race theory does start to become a worldview. Mm. And we can debate that. Uh, and I think they're right. I think yeah, yeah. It, it can become sort of this yeah, yeah. whole all inclusive way of seeing the world. Um, but it's, and that, so that's an interesting piece, yeah. right? Yeah. Where. Yeah. I think Marx generally did see his as an alternative. Yeah. Where today the critical theories, um, they they may not see themselves that way, yeah. but the outsider can look at them and see that they are yeah. operating that way. Well, and I think it does go back to this idea that even if, even if, and I've, I've heard this said in the environment actually around transgender um, critical theory, that that those that support it don't even aware of the critical component that it is. They. They bought into it for other reasons and just have onboarded those things without even knowing it. And so if you try to argue and say, well, I see your theory. Let's go back and look at your Marxian framework and challenge it there. They go, that's got nothing to do with me. I got yeah. nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm doing this thing. Because it does come down for a lot of people. And this is what I'd like to do maybe just to frame this out. Sure. Is where we have it now in this critical theories stage is we're looking at a lot of people who have grabbed onto an experience. And they've been taught to see in that experience a moment of oppression. Yeah. Um, a moment of exploitation, a moment of someone outside has defined me and tried to make me who I am rather yeah. than me. And so if that's the way you're thinking and what I feel about myself is I'm transgender, then any moral system about sexuality becomes an oppressive system. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we're, we're, we're in the final stage, I mean, at least now in the 21st century, we call the final stage, where we're, a lot of people are embracing the critical theory mode to deal with those central experiences, as you said before. Yeah. And, and now critical theory has just become a way for me to express my experience of wanting to be authentic when I'm told I have to act like a boy or act like a man or act white or act black, whatever the case may be. Right, right. And, and I think, too, like, I think there's another piece of this. I, I mean, we, we work at an evangelical institution, um, and I think what we're even seeing today in evangelicalism is, and I've heard some scholars use this term, that Evangelicals are sometimes, if they're not being very thoughtful and reflective of their faith in the society, 
sometimes they're only three or four steps behind the culture. Yeah, yeah. And so what we're seeing today, oftentimes, this is just a, a sort of a, a, a product of some of this, is this way of thinking, particularly from the Frankfurt School to the critical theories, uh, particularly when we get into the areas of sexuality and mm-hmm. gender, they have pretty much have normalized sexuality outside of uh, a monogamous yeah. relationship and marriage, right? Yeah. It's 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 no longer a taboo in the culture today for two 20-year-olds to live together yeah. before they get married. What's interesting is that evangelicals have picked up that part. Yeah, yeah. Because it's become normalized in the culture, but they don't actually know how that happened. Right. Right. Counter to that though, they also don't know why that doesn't work with the biblical yeah framework yeah because they haven't been taught that either yeah so on the one hand the church hasn't taught them a a, a theology of sex creation and marriage mm-hmm. but the culture has given them a a ideology of sexuality right which seems very liberating yeah and so they've bought that makes sense they've bought that right that they've accepted that not even knowing any of this or no, they've just right. accepted right. it's okay for me to have sex with my girlfriend now and I'm good. They're not even saying my pastor is being oppressive, right? right? They're just saying it's okay. But part of that is because they haven't done this other hard work, right? right. And so sometimes I think there are people who might be adopting the results of critical theories unreflectively because they really don't know why they would be opposed to it. Right, right. Now let's let's go with that and let's take a step, one step further back in the narrative. Because we, we know in America there was a time when there was a set of moral values that were largely accepted, broadly accepted. And it, you, would have, you would have trained your emotions and your feelings according to those expectations. Yeah. Gay was not, not okay, so you would have been like, no, I don't, I don't know if I really feel that. Or maybe I had an off day, or maybe I'm just, that's just not me. Um, I don't agree with my own feelings. So there was some idea at one point that there was a moral. And that started to degrade to the point where you get now. Where the, as you said it well, the individual experience becomes the defining feature of whether it's moral. If I feel that way, it's right. If I don't feel that way, it's not. Or if I feel that way, it's real. If I don't feel it. So something has happened where we went from some sort of broad moral consensus to that. And I think if we step back then the next phase, we'd have to say that somewhere in the era of the late 60s and early 70s, that consensus view the cultures had started to started to fracture yes. around some big issues yes. that were very real. And I think the two we've, we've identified are right, among others, and that is number one, the Vietnam War, yep. which I think our, our young people now who came, I was born during the end of the war, yep. and so it was part of my cultural milieu, both of ours. We watched the Watergate hearings on TV when yeah, we learned how to yeah, walk. That's right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so that, so the Vietnam plays well, and then of course, just the, the reality of the civil rights movement, yeah. um, which, you know, both can happen at the same time and begin to say something about this monolithic cultural system, which we were so positive about coming out of World War II, actually not delivering on the promises that it was making. Yeah. And so if we had to go backwards to say, how do we get to the point where 20 year old Christian people can say, it must be okay for me to sleep together because, yeah. you know, it's just who we are and how we feel about it. They have to realize they've gotten that because the moral consensus that would have disallowed that at one time started to fracture around these very real issues. And if those issues had not happened and the moral consensus were to remain, they'd not be feeling right now like this is okay. You are correct. Yeah, they, 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 would, they would automatically go, oh, no, we would never sleep together. You just don't do that. So it's funny you bring that up. So uh, I'm teaching a class right now what I would call modern church history. Okay. So it's supposed to cover the 19th and 20th centuries, but 
because I'm a historian, I'm like, I can't just jump in there. <laughs> right. and, and, and so the way I started the class was I, I drew a timeline on the board. And because we're trying to help them understand where did Protestantism come from, where did Catholicism come from, we start with the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And you and I know that's even done. That right. Really should go you got to go further than that. Yeah, you should go back to the book of Revelation. And, <laughs> yeah. But you got to stop somewhere. And, and so what I do is I put this timeline on the board. It's like, we're going to do it at 1517. I said, but we're going to take this to 2022. We're going to take this to right now. That's where this class is going. we got 500 years. We're going to go. And I said, but what I want to do is I want to place you in this story. Mm-hmm. And so I draw a little stick person on the board. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I usually have a student, you know, Dan. This is you. It's a good you rendition. Were, you were a student at this school, mm-hmm. and and these and this is the culture you come from. Now, give me the adjectives of your group. Mm-hmm. Tell me what those are. You know, and you know, if you're at an evangelical institution, you might say, well, Republican, you know, <laughs> or uh, repressed, or, or whatever. I said, okay, and just get them on the board. Okay. And I said, what I want is, and then I'll just take the timeline because they're all about twenty years old. I said, you came into this story right here. Right here. I said, I want you to keep this in mind because you don't know what it was like back there. Yeah, that's right. Right? You have no idea. You showed up right here and this was just normative at this point. I was like, I want to show you how we got there. Yeah. So now we're going to roll the tape back and bring it this way. Yeah. And students, they get that. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm in that. Now, that doesn't work when we're doing ancient church history. Yeah. Right? Because we're not taking it up that far. Not going that far, yeah. But in this class, it works because I said, we need to find out how did you get here? And that works. I said, because a lot of the things that you just assume, you don't realize that, you know, so for instance, it's it's an evangelical group. They think, you know, if you haven't had a conversion experience, you're probably not a Christian. I said, well, if you said that to someone in the Middle Ages, they might not understand what you're talking (laughs) about. Right. And I said, so we need to find out where that idea came from, you know, and, and this, this and this. But also we need to find out. You know, why does Christianity look the way it does yeah, in this yeah. place? So that I think is you are exactly right. But I want to go back to the 68 point that is is interesting. And I, I've read some scholarship recently looking at 1968, mm-hmm. looking at the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is we now have worldwide scholars, Europe, all over, talking about how the sexual revolution was not just an American story, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, uh, France is 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 legalizing homosexuality in the late '60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's still criminal in '68, '67 right. in France, mm-hmm. uh, England, Germany. I mean, th- this one book I read, they even talked about how some of the sexual revolution even seeped into Soviet Union, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This closed down system, mm-hmm. yet. So, so there's something going on in the West, mm. and Vietnam is certainly the pivot point for us in America, but I think we also need what's going on in the West, yeah, yeah. where the late 60s seem to be this time, because right. I mean, we know there's marches in Berlin, there's marches mm-hmm. in Paris, mm-hmm. there's marches in London, and they're not just all protesting the Vietnam War, yeah. some of them are, yeah. um, but it, it is interesting, and maybe part of that has to do with the information age, everyone's all much more connected in the late yeah, 60s. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting that we can kind of say the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement were catalysts yeah. for some of this in America and the post-war era. Yeah. What were the catalysts in those other places? Yeah, yeah, and those are broad questions, but I think the, the right question to ask is what are the catalysts? Because, yeah. because really when it comes down to what a student is feeling going through now is they are the result of that catalytic moment. And, yeah. they, and, and, and I think as the point that we, I, think, I think we need to keep returning to in this is that you have somehow onboarded and absorbed 
those same ideals genetically, even though all you think you're doing is just being interested in your girlfriend. And I, I, I'm, I'm Disney has yeah. said that I need to find my best future and be me. Yeah. All of that comes from this. So I think it is important to go back. And, and you're right. Maybe this is broader. I think probably just for American context, it allows, gives us some handhold it to does. say there's something about a, a, a first world power proclaiming to fight for liberty and justice globally around yeah. the world and save it from communism when the videos that I'm seeing at night are of GIs burning homes and the Milai massacre results and something's gone on where the power that claims to be the moral standard bearer of the world is now actually committing what looks like an unjust genocide in Vietnam. Or a couple of years before that, I'm watching the police department sick, sick dogs and exactly. fire hoses on black people marching for voting yeah, rights. And burning right? kids. Yeah. On television, on the nightly news. Right, right. Or kid, right, so you're right. I think that becomes a catalyst for some of this. And, and maybe that is part of the catalyst for just the Western world in general. America and Russia are the two role. superpowers yeah, at this true. time. And if people start looking at America saying, you know, I know there are allies and they're helping us defend against <laughs> Russia, but... This is really bad. guys, yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you do have, so as I say, in this genetic thing, we we do have to go back and see the connections, and it's not also not fair of students or or young or whoever's dealing with sort of critical theories now, not to realize that the, they're reacting to things there that actually were real. I mean, it, yes. it, the the idea of Vietnam and there's and it's a complicated story. I'm not I'm not one to say Vietnam was all just an imperialistic effort by America right. over the Vietnamese. It's a complicated story that had its good and its bad, sadly. But, but the reality is that there was pain happening to a third world population, which became very apparent to American culture, who comes off World War II high on the American character, that now all of a sudden asks questions, like, like is all morality just an excuse for imperialism? Hmm. Was World War II and all the great things we did just really just a reason to take over Europe mm -hmm. and to expand our industrial footprint globally mm -hmm. and expand mm -hmm. the dollar? So it, you really don't get to those latter-day problems yeah. until you get through this little phase here, yeah. at least for us anyway, yeah. of this of the Vietnam and the crisis that becomes, and exactly as you say, the civil rights movement, where for the first time the television is showing that all these great promises about American liberty, which we proclaimed all the communists. Yeah. By the way, the communists knew that, right? Their yeah. propaganda is rife with, yeah. here's what the African-American goes through in America. Yeah. That's capitalism. Yeah. They saw it almost before we did. Right. So, 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 that, so if we walk backwards, we can say we then have this moment that helps trigger and brings on some of these big changes we'll see in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And, th and that really becomes a critical moment, sorry to use that term, but a critical moment in becoming very suspicious yeah. of the things that we once trusted. And I think that's a key element in the critical theory movement is that you become suspicious. And I think you've used the word conspiratorial, which I think a lot of it is. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that sense of conspiracy, then later now we are you don't automatically suspect you know suspicious of anyone with a moral idea. Why are you why are you telling me that? Are you trying to make me into something? Why are you trying to tell me how to wear jeans because I'm a boy? Are you trying to yeah. like there's this automatic suspicion that I think is tied directly back to these moments. So there is an important moment worth understanding. Yeah. And we're gonna have to unpack that and the impact yeah. that has. And I think that's America. an important point, Dr. Spender, is that throughout this genealogy, throughout this uh, under under you know, tracking down the DNA. Um, you know, it wasn't as if Karl Marx was just, you know, dropping mushrooms yeah, and yeah. was just completely right, off. Right. It, it, he saw some things that were bad, right? I mean, we have, labor, law, we have labor laws now due to some of the things yeah. that he was looking at uh, and he was experiencing, he was seeing, and the same thing was happening in the United States. So, you know, so I think that's, you make a really good point is that these ideas are not just a group of sinister people. Right, right. How do we take down what is good, holy, and beautiful? Right, right. They're, they're, in fact, it's, it's probably very typical of the city of man to, mm. on the one hand, they can't fight 
knowing it's not the way it's supposed to be. Somehow it's not the way it ought to be. It's right? not the way it ought to be, but they don't want to really accept why it's not the way it is, right? <laughs> right if right. we could just rearrange the furniture right. a little bit, things <laughs> would get better. Gonna be, it's going to be all right. right? That's yeah. so typical of the city Very of man, right? Exactly. And I think that's one way to look at this is these are ways people in the city of man, but I think it's important thing is this is a Western story. So what I think makes this so complicated for the Christian is oftentimes they're using language that is actually very Christian. Yeah, that's right. Right? I mean, uh, the Roman Empire, there was no Karl Marx in the Roman Empire concerned about workers. (laughs) Right, yeah. Right? So as much as he's an atheist and he's pushing, the very fact that he's concerned about workers says something to the effect of the, and I think Tom Holland's work has gotten at this, right? The effect of Christendom. Yeah. Right? And so I think this is what makes some of this so complicated is that Many of these conversations are are being had, and they seem like they're concerned about something that's really heinous. Right. And sometimes they're actually using, dare I say, Christian language yeah, like okay. justice. Right. Right. That that's not a Roman word. That's not. That's a Christian <laughs> that, word. You know that that's a that's a, that's a that's a Christian word. I mean, you know, early on the Romans had idea of justice in yeah. the Republic, but we get to Paul's term, it, it's, they're not talking about it the way Christians are. No, certainly not. And so I think that's also what gets difficult for the Christians, because some of this may sound Christian. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because it's got Christian rhyme yeah, sometimes, right? right? It's, it's, it's the same way people want to say, well, the early book of, uh, the, you know, the Christians in Acts were actually just good communists. <laughs> yeah, right? right? right. It, it seems like it fits. And it's like, no. The, and so that's part of this disentangling, yeah. I think, that we want to try to do. Yeah, right. That's, that's right. And there's and it gets more complicated as you go further back. And I, I think one of the things we both recognize is by the time you get to the 60s, you know, we look at the civil rights, this this obvious lie or hypocrisy in the American dream that we're all just but yet civil rights and then or we're all just and good in Vietnam. That the reason that Americans find the language to be suspicious is because just before that, this period in between the wars, you had Europeans already going through that very mm-hmm. critical moment or crisis moment where they believed, and I think probably coming out of you know the 1890s into World War One, that they were on the brink of human civilization, yeah. and then World War One tore the mask off of everything. Yeah. And all of a sudden, in the disaster that was, people were trying to pick up the pieces and figure out why why did this go so wrong? And of course, Hitler came up with an answer for that. Yeah. Stalin had his own answer for that. But then the new Mussolini. group, of, right, Mussolini. Yeah. But a new group of intellectuals actually came up with a new argument for that, and yeah. this is what we now called the critical theory movement yeah. in Frankfurt uh, School, which was, I think, tied to the Goethe University. And then they fled Hitler because they were sounding communist, and they ended up at Columbia University right. in New York um, with the New School of Social, um, new school of social Theory or New yeah. School of Social, social, social Statistics. California. Went out to California. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the reason that we had the language in this era of the, of the civil rights movement is because there had been some theorists that were developing that language during that period, which was a very, and I think you've made this point, each of these eras is different. You can't mm-hmm. just no. easily understand it. So to understand the, the Frankfurt School, you actually now have to start evaluating what is it for the European mind to face the absolute and utter disaster of World War One? That's right. right? And Particularly the German part. The German part, right, yeah. specifically. And the, and the answer of that to socialist, nationalist socialism, yeah. right, which was a particular answer to that, which helped many in the Frankfurt School say, oh, law and morality, which Hitler is preaching, is just an oppressive regime, right. right, to control society for the sake of the industrialist and the military capitalist corrupt and the great gun factories desperately want moralistic war in because fact, they need In fact, you money. actually get the Frankfurt School at one point. It's not as if the capitalists in the West are bad and Russia's good. They actually start to see Russia 
The Soviet Union is nothing more than a socialist capitalist movement, right? It's just capitalism. It just state owns it all. You know, so they they really didn't. So it's fascinating that that when they run from Hitler, they don't go to Russia. Right. Right. Because they don't like them either. No, that's right. Uh, So I think that's that's an interesting point. They don't like either one, really. America is almost the less of the two evils. Well, it's a space for them. And it's a space for them. And let's be honest, they're they're. The Frankfurt School, the trust, mm-hmm. is being financed by stocks in Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. So it's, that makes sense, right? But there was a real tension for right. them uh, while they were here. And, and it was, but you're right, it, it, it has this, it, it develops over time and it evolves over time. But I think one of the things it does is, I think it, all of these things is they attempt to explain why am I in the position I'm in. Yeah. And sometimes I think if one of the problems with it, other than some of the ones we've laid out, is that it's very simplistic. Yeah. Well, it must be economics. It must be race. It yeah. must be. Those are certainly contributing factors, sure. but it's probably, you know, I'm too Augustinian to really believe it's only one of them. Right. right yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it, 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 it. This is life in the in in the in the fall. Right. Um. This these things are going to happen. And right. And then and so those become and and they're real. Like the problems they are, are actual. The, the theories that we use to try to, to manage them, to define them, to package them in such a way that we can face them, actually ends up redefining what the problem is. When you, when you yes. package it so you can solve it, That's you can a say, great yeah, point. so you've got all of these problems with humanity. Oh, I know what it is. It's merely, you know, uh, Gramsci, hegemonic imperialism. Yep. Once you remove that, voila, yep. all the problems of poverty disappear. That's right. As you said, I think really overly simplistic. So now you redefine the human problem as not sin or moral. It's really just economic conditioning and, and yeah. construct. And, and in fact, what, what, what I think some of these critical theories lack is a healthy dose of Christian realism. Oh, my, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's idealism, to be sure. It is. And it's rooted in German idealism. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, it's, right. It's, it's, so, again, I'm probably too Augustinian to, to fully right. be able to buy this. Right. It's, and I'm a Gen Xer, so that also hurts. <laughs> but um, but I, I think, yeah, I think... I think that's that's really helpful to understand that that's what we want to try to we want to undisentangle some of this what yeah. is it how did it come from uh, how did it develop where did it come from and where were the events along the way right. that were birthing the idea that's right you and, can't and, and, disentangle right. that's right and how does it amplify the genome and how does it help craft and shape it although it means consistent there are these things and so. i think too dr Spencer, i think one of the i want to talk maybe a little bit about people who just want to dismiss it and they say, well, that's neo-Marxism. That's so. That's neoclassical, more neo-social Marxism. Yeah, yeah. And what happens is you you kind of dismiss it in the abstract. Yeah, that's right. Right, and that's you right. miss what you just said that there's actually real pain happening on the right. ground right. that people are looking for solutions. And as Christians, we can say those aren't the solutions, right? right? But by just sort of say, oh, that's social Marxism, you're kind of dismissing it in the abstract, right. and you're not actually getting down yeah. into the dirt. And and seeing what why is this flower right. even germinating? Right, right, right. right. There's well, really stuff there, yeah. right? And I think I think each one of these phases allows you to have an honest conversation about that. I think I think in this phase in the in the World War One to World War Two phase, you have to deal with the actual disaster this is to the German people, economically, socially, culturally, morally, and then the rise of nationalistic socialism for all of its promises creates a whole new set of problems for a whole new group of people, and, and, obviously. And I'll go back to Marx in the, in the 1740s or the 1840s and 1850s. This is a extremely revolutionary yeah. time. The entire world is changing before yeah. your very eyes. I mean, you're going from agrarian, people are moving into cities. Yeah. We've yeah. got canals, we've got trains, we've got telegraph. I mean, 
you know, just think how in the last, uh, I guess we're at 18 or 15 years now, how revolutionary the iPhone, yeah. the smartphone has been to our society yeah. in all its right. ways. That's one piece of technology that was built on a lot. Yeah. The amount of change that 19th century Westerners experienced yeah. socially, politically, yeah. technologically, economically right. was vast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's vast. I mean, it's just, you can't believe it. Yeah. And I Marx mean, is not wrong about the impact it's having on society and the people there and what they're going yeah, to do. Yeah, where, where we've got to go after Marx is his prescription. Right. Right, but the critique is there's good critique there. There's some good critique there, that and can we fix this? And can we right. just? And again, we're gonna have Christians try to do the same thing with yeah. the social gospel yeah. in the post World War II era or post Civil yeah. War. Right. right. Again, we're gonna question. Okay, yes, I understand your 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 prescription. It's your diagnosis I have a problem with. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I you're, right. Yeah. So, so, I'm, so as I as we're and what we're hoping to do, I think, is take each one of these areas and turn it into a, a conversation that at least at this point you can sort of see connected. But you know, each one needs to deal with in its own turn. Yeah. So, so the World War One. If you go back, the Columbia, the the Frankfurt School, and that development, which is in that Chrysler World War One itself, is built on a set of ideas that was coming along. In you've already mentioned Industrial Revolution, eighteen eighties and nineties, which is already starting to ask new questions in that very space you just mentioned about industrialization. Yeah. What happens to the human identity when we all become part of a, a factory line? And yeah. who who am I? How, how can I possibly identify myself? And Freud. Who's looking at the you know the identity underneath the construct, right? Mm -hmm. That even you don't have control of. We're looking at, you know, the development of anthropology, which actually says all morality belongs to time and space. There's yeah. nothing that transcends that, um, and and even the impact that Darwin's having. And there's a whole space there we have to talk about those ideas that came along in that industrial revolution moment, which laid the groundwork for then the critical theorists to have to pick up. Because most critical theorists would say we're Marx and Freud. That that's what we are as a combination of those two things. Well, Freud really is not talking until the 1880s, 1890s. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make an appearance until World War One. He was dealing with shell shock, but it's in those years that his ideas started to form. Yeah. So there's the the crisis of World War One is one thing, but the one you just mentioned is a whole nother seedbed. Yeah. Which is the crisis of of the industrial second industrial revolution, the 1880s and 90s yes. in Europe. So we're going to have to deal with that a little bit, and then to backtrack even further, the idea that helped undergird most of that then becomes Marx, and you've already yeah. mentioned Marx. And let's add one more layer to this, and we're not going to go into this, but it's good for our listeners to hear, is that this timeline, which we say is, say, from 1840 to 2021, from about 40 years prior to that, early 1800s, late, mm -hmm. late 1700s, up until about 1930, uh, there is same heavy, heavy spade work being done yeah. to disentangle the West from Christendom. Yeah, yeah. Right? With higher criticism and yeah. and, and the birth of liberal theology, yeah. the Enlightenment. So and then, and you the can't Hegelians disconnect and, that yeah. from this, no, right. this type of thing, right? So where maybe these types of thoughts wouldn't have had any space in the 17th century. None whatsoever. Once the Enlightenment comes along, and once you have Schleiermacher and Kant, and, and, and yes, I mean, it, it, the whole epistemological machine right. is just being turned upside down. Right. Right. And so that's, I think, such an important thing for Christians to remember, yeah. uh, that that Christian framework now actually becomes part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And it's hard to, hard to appreciate. Now it just sounds like an apologetic battle between... The atheists and the theists or right. something like that. But it really has this long genetic history of, of 
atheists, and I, I say this to students all the time, and I think you're right, that atheism is not born in the West because of a logical or scientific issue. It's born out of a social concern. Oh, yeah. That, that they see the social concern and they blame religion, and then they say, then if you're serious about fixing the social problem, the one thing you want to get rid of is religion, which has caused it. Yeah. And so, you know, you're, we're, we're having these logical arguments about Christianity and theism, and it comes down to some propositional argument. It's always been a social argument from the beginning. Yeah. That's just the latter day. So I think where we need to begin this, Mark, to your point, um, and what we'd like to do in our next podcast is get back to the, and I think you've already said it, well, you can't find a real starting point because you're always having to go one step right. further. So I, I think the Enlightenment would be helpful, but it could be a little bit distracting for this, but at least to come in right at that era, let's come into the 1770s, 1780s, because they're with the, with the fall of European monarchies, with the crisis the American Revolution has become, yeah. they're starting to develop specifically in Germany, and Kant, I think, is the right place to start. Yeah. And, um, and Herder, that there's some new ideas coming along when Napoleon takes over and sort of destroys the old ancient constructs, the French Revolution and Napoleon. There start to become some ideas in there to reframe the human experience, culture, and society in a way that's going to set Marx up and make sense of yeah. his revolutionary ideas, which become the genetic. So to get just before the, the construction of that DNA strand, we've got to deal with Hegel and Herder, and we got to deal yeah. with Fecht, and we got to deal with Kant, and that German school, yes. which lays the groundwork for that. So I think that's where we need to begin, and I hope our listeners can bear with us, because it's going to sound a little out there. It is. It's going to sound a little disconnected, even Mark sounds a little, but I, I think if you, if, you, if you stick with it, it's going to be worth it, because you'll start to realize that the ideas you have about history, most yeah. of us, mm -hmm. the ideas we have about identity mm -hmm. and the world were handed to us by that generation of thinkers. The ideas of progress. Progress. It, it, that's, an, that's a German idealistic concept that yeah. was handed to us where you don't have to believe that. But if you do believe that, then ideas like critical theory down the road and critical theories makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, but accepting that is a key starting point. And I think we need to spend a little time on that. So that's where we need to go. All right. Then that's where we'll be next time. I look forward to it.